Early on the morning of June 14, 2017, Steve Scalise was practicing for the annual congressional baseball game, Republicans versus Democrats, when a crazed gunman, armed to the teeth, opened fire on him and his teammates. Scalise was badly wounded, his life only saved by two heroic police officers who took out the shooter. It was a shocking event, a brazen attack on members of Congress, and earned Scalise sympathy and prayers from across the aisle while he recovered in the hospital. To make me feel like it wasn't just me, but the whole country had been shot at, I would get to see a nation unified, to see different people from all different backgrounds rooting and praying and working for me to survive, Scalise wrote in a book about the experience entitled Back in the Game. Now, two years later, Scalise is House Minority Whip, number two in the GOP leadership, during a period Washington seems more divided than ever. How does Scalise square the lofty bipartisan sentiments he expressed in his book with the current state of all-out political warfare on Capitol Hill? And how does he explain the unyielding loyalty that he and his GOP colleagues have for President Trump, no matter how divisive his rhetoric and his policies? We'll ask Scalise, and we'll talk to one of our Yahoo News colleagues, Jenna McLaughlin, about our big scoop about a U.S. cyber attack on Iran on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So we don't get a lot of Republicans to come on skullduggery. We ask for a lot of them, much less a member of the Republican leadership in the House. So I think it's pretty cool that we got Scalise to come on this episode. It always uh, helps when they're hawking a book. <laughs> when they're hawking a book. But we got some tough questions for them. Yeah, um, yeah look, you know— he wrote this book about the experience he had at the uh, congressional baseball game when he is shot very severely. I mean, really right. to, to uh, the, an inch of his life. I mean, yes. he almost didn't survive. And this moment was a kind of a dark reflection of the highly polarized times that we live in, kind of the extreme version of, you know, that kind of partisan. And we know, should point out that it was a left-wing Bernie that's Sanders right. that's, supporter that's right. who that's right. deliberately wanted to fire on Republicans. Right. But his well, his takeaway, and this is what he writes writes in the book, is that our common humanity transcends that kind of partisanship, and everyone came together in this moment and saved his life essentially. Right. Um, what we're going to talk to him about is how that translates right. or does not translate into politics in Congress right. in, in, in the year 2019. And this is a good week to do it. We have these uh, you know, appalling reports about conditions at the detention center in Texas, that uh, you know, horrific photograph of the um, migrant with his daughter who drowned to death trying to cross the Rio Grande. Um, you and mentioned it, common humanity. One would think that it would be that Congress would 
would come together out of common humanity trying to fix this problem. And as we talk, they are still at loggerheads. But we're, yeah, we're living in an age of, of dueling narratives, or actually, you know, a single narrative in some ways with the poignant, tragic story of, of this uh, young man and his daughter, Valeria. But you know, both sides blame the other for why it happened. And I think, look, we're going to talk about a couple of other things before we get to the interviews yeah. that reflect the same partisan division. Let's right. talk about well, Mueller. Right. right, yeah. You talk about, like, dueling narratives. Look at the Russia story. Now, we have the big break this week to learn that Robert Mueller is going to testify after all, July 17th, before both House Judiciary and House Intelligence in response to a subpoena. He would not come unless there was a subpoena that required him to testify. And the big question is, what's he going to say that goes beyond the four corners of the report? And he's already said when he gave that press statement a little while back that he will not go beyond the Mueller report. So... You know, the Democrats have been saying uh, it doesn't even matter if he does. If he just to hear his voice, just to hear him talk about the president's conduct that's laid out in that report will have huge impact. There actually was a, a nice line by uh, Denny Heck, who's a Democrat on the uh, House mm-hmm. Intelligence Committee, who said, uh, we have the sheet music, but we haven't heard the song yet. Right. Well, and so I, their I, view I, is that once we hear the song, that's going to have I got to say, impact. having uh, watched Robert Mueller testify many <laughs> times, I wouldn't call him a singer, um, much less an entertaining one. But, and but I, you can already see behind the, you know, in some of the stories, Democrats on background are trying to tamp down expectations. Okay, so cu- publicly, they've got to say this is a huge deal. This is what's going to break through. But privately, I think they're nervous that it yeah. could well backfire. And I'm, I'm skeptical, like you are. But here are a couple of um, ways in which I think this could have impact. One is that this is going to be such a spectacle. There is going to be so much hype. There are going to be so many stories. It's going to be wall-to-wall cable coverage probably for a week before it actually happens, if not more. That means that a lot more Americans are going to actually tune in. Huge numbers of Americans who have not really been paying all that much attention to what was in the Mueller report, let alone having actually read it, which you know is you know, almost no one has actually read the report. So that's one thing that I think could be important. The second thing is... It's not just Mueller who is going to be talking to the House Intelligence Committee and the House Judiciary Committee. My understanding is you're also going to have some members of Mueller's team who will be interviewed, not in public hearings, but behind the scenes. That has not happened so far. We don't know where an Andrew Weissman, if, if he ends up talking to the House Intelligence Committee. Latest reports are he's writing a book, uh, which may make well, it a little and, hard for him to decline to uh, answer questions well, from and, judiciary. Uh, we, yeah, he, yeah, he, yeah. Mr. Weissman, this is a for, not a subpoena because we don't have subpoena power on Skullduggery yet, but this is a a formal invitation for you to come on Skullduggery and talk about um, what you're going to write in your book. Uh, as the lawyers say, asked and answered. I've asked, he answered no. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the lure of Skullduggery. But we we will uh, we will be there on the scene reporting uh, on Mueller's testimony, and and we will be uh, obviously doing a Skullduggery. Uh, and, you know, we'll see. We, we, we don't know. I mean, you know, sometimes there are surprises in these in these hearings. And, you know, for one thing, we may there may be questions from the Republican side. They right. may go after Mueller. 
in ways that make him feel like he's going to have to. I mean, Trump already has this week with this uh, saying Trump deleted the text messages of Peter Strzok and Lisa Page, those two FBI agents who were working the case, who were having a relationship and exchanging messages uh, very derisive about Trump himself. In fact, there's really no truth to what Trump said. No, they were having a hard time retrieving. The FBI was having a hard time retrieving those those text messages, but ultimately they did. Nobody has provided any evidence. In fact, I'm not even aware that other than in conspiracy land. Um, <laughs> Remember you know, the, the, that phrase. We'll be talking about that's that quite a bit. That's a little teaser yes, for a, a, tease for a future for Skullduggery uh, yeah, podcast, a, a Skullduggery joint that's yeah. coming soon your way. Uh, but I don't even know that anyone's – hadn't even been – any allegations that these texts were, were destroyed? By, uh, by, certainly by Mueller. I mean, there were yeah. some missing texts, but the FBI was having a hard time retrieving. But And this comes from a Department of Justice Inspector General report from some months ago. Uh, but uh, it, there was no allegation yeah. that Mueller had anything to yeah. do with the FBI's difficulty in retrieving All right, so moving on, and yes. speaking of dueling narratives, well, we have this week also, and actually I think it broke uh, late on Friday, allegations of an, another woman who who claims right. that she was sexually assaulted, many Jean, have said raped. Jean Carroll, by vice President columnist, Trump. Uh, has recounted an encounter with Trump at uh, the department store, Bergdorf Goodman, in uh, New York City, uh, in which... Uh, in 1996. 95 or 96. In the dressing room, the two of them together, about apparently she thought... Trump was going to try on this pair of lingerie. He thought she was going to try it on. Look, she comes across on TV as spontaneous and compelling. There are some questions that have been raised about her account, starting with how did they both end up inside the uh, dressing room? But that said, given the multiple women now who have come forward and made very serious allegations, this being you know, probably the the most serious of all. At some point, you know, what does one do with the fact that the president has been so accused by so many women? Yeah, I mean, you would think by now, I don't know how many women there are who've come forward, but it's close to 15, I think, that you would be at critical mass uh, so that it would actually have a real impact. But I think it just points up, you know, the, the thing that Trump said during the campaign, which is that he could shoot someone yeah. on on Fifth Avenue and it and it wouldn't matter because, you know, that 40 percent or whatever it is of the country, they choose to believe what they want to believe. They support Trump pretty much no matter what. And ultimately, unless he's uh, credibly accused of a crime and it's and investigated and, you know, th- there's nothing there's nothing you can do in, in this uh you know, incredibly divided well, we political will environment ask that we're in. Steve Scalise about Gene Carroll's allegations and see what he has to say, um, if anything. But just a couple of other quick things. We just got the census decision from the Supreme Court, 5-4, sending it back to the district court for more evidence gathering exactly as predicted on Skullduggery two weeks ago. By Katie Barlow, who is a member of the uh, the Words Matter podcast duo, Um, and she predict yeah she predicted exactly this. She said the Chief Justice Roberts, if if there's any opportunity to punt, um, in her words, he would take it because this is a politically controversial case. He doesn't have to decide it. He's not going to. 
new information had emerged, which raised a lot of questions about the Trump administration's position. And so the Supreme Court can't listen, the appeals courts can't listen to new facts. Chief Justice uh, Roberts, with a majority of the court, with the liberals. siding with the liberals, right. sent it back to the trial court for right. further review. I think the issue, the really relevant issue here is that this case probably won't be decided by the time the census questions have to be finished. Which means that the citizenship question that the Trump administration wanted to be in the census most likely won't be in there. And you heard um, it first. On and you heard it first on Skullduggery. All right. A lot to get to, including I want to start out with the new era of cyber warfare and what we're learning from our Yahoo News colleague. So let's get right to it. We now have with us Jenna McLaughlin, our Yahoo News colleague, national security correspondent. Jenna, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me. You had a huge scoop the other day about the U.S. Cyber Command launching a cyber strike against an Iranian spy group. This was right after the Iranian attack on those oil tankers. Tell us exactly what you learned and who the target was. Sure, absolutely. So while everybody was focused on the potential kinetic strike, what was actually happening is that President Trump authorized a cyber response. So the specific group that I was looking at, the Iranian spy group, it was connected to the IRGC. And for many years, they have been tasked with figuring out where ships are in the Gulf and the Strait of Hormuz. Obviously, that's a really important area. Massive amounts of the world's oil travels directly through that narrow path of water every single day. And Iran has a huge strategic interest in knowing what's going on. So over the years, Iran's cyber capabilities are not quite as advanced as the US probably. But they have becoming more becoming advanced. advanced yes, yeah. but they have some creative ways, perhaps, of learning these things. Yeah, um, I want to get into that. But let's, yeah. let's get into sure. that a little bit later. Let's talk about what happened. And, Absolutely. And so the decision was to uh, retaliate against this specific group that had been tasked with sort of supporting these ship attacks by gathering this information. So the strike was able to directly target IRGC make it more difficult for them to launch weapons. It directly targeted their their uh, command and control systems. So it implanted malware inside yes. launch systems used by yes, as, as far Iranian as we can spy tell. group? Right. So this was the, the target here, the spy group was an actual military force of some kind. They, they were the ones that launched the attack on those tankers? Well, they supported it by providing the intelligence. And, this is and, a this is like a cyber unit within the yes. Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, yes, which is yes. the main kind of uh, military force within Iran. Within Iran, yes, right, right. and yeah. declared a terrorist group by the United States government. Exactly, right. Pretty recently by yes. the State Department. Yes. And how much do we know? First of all, do we know that it was that it was effective? That it was actually a successful attack? It's always a good question. I think it's probably too soon to know for sure, particularly yeah. because it's, you know, Iran can lie about that. Right. And by the way, I should point out that I was actually at a concert on Friday night when I see the email that we had this story and I'm reading it and I'm saying, wait a second, is this, does everyone have this? Is this exclusive? And so I emailed your editor, our Washington Bureau Chief Sharon Weinberger, and she said, yep, totally exclusive. And the reason I bring that up is because 
These cyber operations are among the most closely held secrets in the United States government. I mean, it's very hard to learn about a you know covert cyber operation like this. So I know you're not going to reveal <laughs> your sources here, but tell us a little bit about the kind of reporting tradecraft. How do you get a story like this? Sure. So you're right in saying that it's really difficult and it doesn't happen that often, especially if you're not, you know, the sort of designated person at the post of the Times. But I think the process that I went through here is that I had been looking specifically at Iranian cyber capabilities because everybody was looking more at the ongoing conflict between the White House, uh, Pompeo, Bolton, looking at sort of those officials exchanging barbs. But I said, you know, I, I know more about the espionage side. I know more about the cyber side. So let's look at kind of which groups might have been paying attention there. And, and maybe that'll be relevant. It's uh, a really important point, because I think you can sort of safely say that at this point, Whenever there is kinetic activity, as you mentioned before, uh, that is happening kind of overtly, there's also almost always going to be a cyber component. That's just where we are in warfare between nations and between nations and non-nation states. Absolutely. I mean, in 2018, Cyber Command put out some sort of strategic vision document, which, you know, sounds like a load of DOD hooey. But in reality, they were sort of declaring, you know, we're here to stay we are going to defend forward, which means we're going to kind of be in adversary systems. We're going to be doing things, and some of those are going to be visible. So President Trump himself approved this operation? Yes, as far as we know. I didn't include that in my story, but uh, that, that was... I think others reported yes. that, that after yes. they were following your story. They had to advance it. That was the detail yes, that some I of them think got. So. But this is at the same time, or roughly the same time, that he's calling back what was going to be the actual missile counter attack. Absolutely. Right. And as far as we knew, that was all ready to go. So perhaps when he knew he had this option, it sounded like doing something without actually bombing. So it strikes me like this is the future of warfare. We, you know, forestall. We do not launch the actual missile strike. Mm -hmm. We do it through cyber. We do a cyber attack. And it seems to me that we're entering an era where we either are seeing much more of this or we're going to be seeing a lot more of this. Yeah, I, I think that that's probably accurate. Cyber Command, its most recent couple operations, I think, have ultimately become public. So I think we will continue to see more of that. But there isn't really an international kind of framework, a set of rules of the road for how to deal with particularly offensive cyber attacks. That's And and the offense, and clearly uh, we have an offensive capability. We haven't used it that much that I'm aware of. So that's part of what's relatively new here is going on the offense. I mean, I guess you could say it was a retaliatory strike, right, so right. Uh, defensive in that sense. But really, this is about our offensive capability. Well, wouldn't you exactly. say Stuxnet kind of broke the mold? Right, was that was what I was going to mention. First, uh, right, oh, that was a, yeah, the CIA operation. This is the military. But yes, right. But right. It, was a, it was a U.S. offensive cyber strike That's right. against another country. With sort of destructive country. capabilities, exactly. Right. Of course, and involving the Iranians as well. Exactly. So there is a... There is already a long history of cyber conflict between the United mm-hmm. States 
and Iran. What's the Iranian capability? We started to talk about that before. But. Right, absolutely. So, I mean, funny you mentioned Stuxnet. That was kind of the moment a lot of folks I spoke to pointed to where Iran woke up to this reality and said, hey, we need to get in this game too. We need to, to bulk up our capabilities. So in this particular instance, um, their methods were pretty creative. One of their tactics was to create a bunch of different fake social media profiles, pretend to be a really attractive woman who's seeking some contacts with some Navy sailors, send him a Facebook message, ask when his ship's passing through the strait. And, and there's actually a term for that that you use, which is yeah. honeypotting. <laughs> exactly. That's an old, probably one of the oldest uh, forms of, uh, uh, of, of tradecraft for spies. Right. This is a kind of the digital version of honeypotting. Exactly. So talk about yeah. that. What so, exactly... Did these accounts say who was behind them and what and what exactly was the the tactic? Yeah, I mean the tactic is just what it sounds like. You create a fake Facebook profile. Uh, actually, in the story, we sort of explored how that advanced over time. The original ones were obvious. You know, a woman in a bikini sends a message to a Navy sailor asking about where his ship's going to be, being very straightforward, just get the information and go. And it's it's sort of advanced over time where maybe it's an attractive woman, but she's not in a bikini. She starts to engage with you, have real conversations, maybe a elicit little, a little more, more information. Exactly. So has the Navy taken steps to um, make sure its sailors don't respond <laughs> to fetching looking women, uh, <laughs> reaching out to them on Facebook? Yeah, I mean, Is they there are, a Navy they're policy? certainly aware of this. They're they're certainly aware of this, and as far as I can say, have yeah. sort of taken measures to advise against it. But I mean, what are you going to uh, do mean, at the end of the day? Edi- well, yes, I can see how it would be um, hard to police your uh, exactly. sailors when they get some of these messages. But the idea was this is the way the Iranians kept track of one of the ways. Uh, one of the ways yeah. our ships were in the Persian Gulf, right? exactly, uh, yeah, and where they were, and. For what purpose? Well, I mean, typically the purpose is if you want to attack. You want to know where those ships are going to be. I mean, it's it's classic espionage also. You want to have situational awareness. Right. You want to know who's passing through, if they might have, you know, dangerous intentions, if they might want to attack you. But you also want to know exactly where that ship's going to be in case you want to launch an attack. So this was the the cyber, the the digital Matahari, but uh, the <laughs> yeah. but, but the Iranians have also developed some more sophisticated techniques for tracking ships passing through the Strait of Hormuz, both uh, military ships and civilian. Talk about some of those. I think one right. of them may be actually hacking into websites that track exactly. these things. So, yes, you got it exactly right. The One of the methods that they've used is hacking into these ship tracking websites so that they can gather that information. And then I, I think in your story, you also talk about a capability that I didn't know existed. I didn't even know we had this capability of actually being able to redirect U.S. drones so that they're able to implant code inside U.S. drones to actually change the coordinates? Yeah, so I confirmed with multiple officials that uh, Iranians are capable of GPS spoofing. So they can do that attack, and at least in the instance in 2011 when they redirected a U.S. drone to their shores, they were able to sort of plug in other coordinates so that the drone phoned home and, and traveled down to the shores, and they intercepted it and got that information. And it's interesting in this instance, it's clear that they wanted to sort of send a message that they were, you know, here to here to fight because they decided to shoot the drone down instead of intercepting it. So about a week or so before 
your story, uh, the New York Times reported that there had been a cyber intrusion by Cyber Command into the Russian power grid, and that this was cited as a an example of a real ratcheting up by Cyber Command in their offensive operations. But they said that that was not briefed to President Trump, in part because they were U.S. cyber officials were concerned that if the mm. president learned about it, he would shut down that operation because mm-hmm. he did not want to retaliate against the Russians. This is seems to me a, a murky area now of what has to be directly approved by the president and how much latitude in the alternative does Cyber Command to conduct these operations on their own? Absolutely. And I think that is continuing to be a really murky area. With this story, I think it's sort of being contested by DOD. I'm not sure exactly what the issue is here. But in this instance, I think maybe we might be running into a difference of authority, potentially. If you are sort of laying the groundwork for a potential attack, you're setting up command and control infrastructure so that you can gather information covertly. That's different than actually launching an attack. And those fall under different authorities. So if you're within NSA or Cyber Command, you would be able to sort of prepare for said attack without actually asking for approval to to launch one. And I think that that's kind of more understood, at least within the cyber community, that there's an interest in camping out on foreign systems. I get that. But if you're the Russians and you discover that U.S. Cyber Command hackers have implanted malware in your power grid, you're going to be pretty pissed off and you might retaliate, correct? Uh, Potentially. Right. So it seems to me that's the sort of action that there ought to be some civilian control and review of before it gets launched. Right. I mean, it's it's really interesting. I mean, last summer, President Trump revoked an Obama-era authority, PPD-20, mm-hmm. one of these executive orders. PPD. And PPD, Presidential, Presidential Policy, Policy Directive Guidance 20. Yeah. Yeah. So Obama issued that in an effort to make sure that all of the stakeholders were at the table when sort of cyber operations were launched. You know, you've got Treasury, you've got State, you've got all these different people who might have an interest in some of the negative repercussions of a cyber attack that maybe the head of cyber command wouldn't know about or wouldn't think about. And a lot of people complain that that was really cumbersome. You know, it took forever to get anything done. But Trump went in the other direction and just totally scrapped that and made it a lot easier. And at the time, a couple of officials sort of told me that the gloves are off. It's going to be a lot easier to do things without telling. Without telling the White House. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that was, I think, part of Trump's intention. That was some of I mean, he did this not just in the cyber arena, but he also did it. For drones as well, because mm-hmm. the Obama administration had this very careful vetting process similar to what you right. just described. All the different stakeholders, they had these big civets meetings yeah. uh, where they all debated the law and, you know, uh, all these complicated questions. And Trump wanted to send those authorities back to the commanders in the, in the field. But right. here's an interesting, you know, I think it's an important issue on cyber because a lot of people think that these uh, you know, cyber attacks are, you know, kind of equivalent of like some Atari game or something, mm-hmm. that it's not kind of, it's, it's virtual warfare. But the reality, Jenna, isn't it that cyber attacks can translate into physical attacks and civilians can die, many civilians can die if you play it out. For example, 
you shut down the grid, you shut, the, you know, hospitals get shut down. I mean, this is this could have huge physical effects, right? And that's right. something that Trump apparently has wanted to avoid. Yeah, I mean, these scenarios have sort of been played out, but are starting to enter reality. Just a couple weeks ago, the city of Baltimore was ransomware, and uh, they needed to pay back that money in order to get control of their systems. You know, imagine that on a hospital. Their operations can't work. What so do you do? Just back to the, uh, the authorities question here. The president has relaxed the authorities, given Cyber Command more latitude to conduct these on their own. How about reporting to the intelligence committees on the Hill? It's a great question. I think just in conversations around the newsroom, we've been asking the same one, saying, how do the committees and the members of those committees feel about how much information they're receiving on intelligence And what's operations? the answer? Within it, it seems like some of the members of the defense committees have been saying, you know, we're a little bit concerned that we're missing out on a couple things. I think that that was mentioned in some of the language of the NDAA. That's My the colleague Sean defense. Naylor uh, was talking about that. That's the, the defense, the defense author- authorization it's, Yeah, it's, it's the money for, for right. the incoming Because Cyber year. Command is under the... Uh, jurisdiction of the Pentagon. Exactly. Um, But it does appear that we're entering this new era of wild, wild west era of cyber warfare in which we're giving the military more power to conduct these operations on their own. These operations are becoming more robust. Mm -hmm. uh, And we don't really have a handle on how much we're doing, do we? Not really. It's it's a pretty open space without not that much information there to understand where the lines are, how this applies to sort of existing standards. I mean, it's funny, actually, I was just in Estonia, and they're kind of the only ones that have been really thinking yeah. about this. I, I wanted to ask you about that. But before we get to that, because you went on a very interesting trip to a number of European countries who've been dealing with this threat some ways longer than we have. I wanted to ask you why there is so much secrecy shrouding this issue. And it occurs to me that it may have to do with the fact that, uh, you know, we're such an interconnected world. We're extremely vulnerable to these kinds of attacks. So the more what we're doing offensively is exposed, the harder it is it will be to, to defend ourselves. Absolutely. Not only is the U.S. one of the most connected countries out there, I think we also just have all this technology that's very unsecured. Yeah. We have so many things that are plugged into who knows what, Including connected to the internet. election voting systems. Oh, absolutely. Right yeah, that's the a top. complete and that's mess. Right. And let's yeah. talk about that for a second, because uh, you recently came back from a reporting trip to, let's see, uh, Finland, Estonia, Holland and Sweden and Sweden. Mm-hmm. Um, and you were looking at uh, cyber defense in those countries. And in particular, you were asking a lot of questions about defending uh, against uh, intrusions um, and interference in elections. And let's talk about Estonia, because Estonia, in some ways, was the, you know, patient zero, you know, a satellite country of the Soviet Union, and then broke away, and the Russians were not very happy with the Estonians. Mm -hmm. And I think it was under Vladimir Putin, they essentially shut down the country of Estonia with a massive cyber attack in 2007. So what did you learn from the Estonians about what the Russians are capable of now and how we can defend ourselves against the kinds of attack that we experienced in 2016? A whole lot. Uh, So I'll have a story coming out about that as well uh, for people to read. But when I was in Estonia, I was there for the Lennart Marie conference, and there were a lot of top officials to interview, the former president, the defense minister, the head of their essentially FBI. And 
they did talk a fair amount about defending elections. It was the week of the EU parliamentary elections in Estonia. And what's interesting in, in Estonia is that they have the option to vote online. They're the only ones that have really kind of fully gone for this effort to go online. And there are a lot of cybersecurity experts who say that that's inherently vulnerable. You know, people go on their computers, their cell phones. I think it's only computer desktops for the, for the voting option. Who knows if it's infected by malware? Who knows if a grandma has clicked a link? And who knows? But I think what the Estonians feel is that they've had this for a long time. They have a really well-established system. They thought about security at the offset, they understand these vulnerabilities. And because they have this digital ID that is connected, it's end-to-end encrypted, it uses What do you mean digital ID? They all have like a license, essentially, that's a digital ID. And they can use that for all, yes, all government services. Like like a social security card? Yeah. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. They can order prescription drugs, they can vote, they can, do anything. But can they the, also be tracked ideas. by the government? That was my first question. Well, exactly. Is the government I, I tracking that, every... Uh, that would be the, the, the American Digital IDs at Yahoo News so I can keep track of Isikoff and everyone else. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the funny thing there is if a government employee or anyone with access to your card accesses it, there's a log. So you can see every single person and exactly why they, they said that they needed your information. So that is kind of a check that makes people more comfortable with it, I think. Well, this is all fascinating stuff, and it is murky, which is why it's very good we have Jenna keeping track of it for us. I'll try. Thanks. Keep up the good work. Keep keep up and uh, come back and tell us more about what you find. Happy to. We now have with us Louisiana Congressman Steve Scalise, House Minority Whip. Congressman, welcome to Skullduggery. Good to be with you. Thanks. All right. So you were back on the baseball field last night. Yeah, we uh, we had the game last night, and right. uh, and you guys uh, got clobbered. Well, you once know, not, again. not as bad as last year. Actually, it was <laughs> it was fourteen to seven, as they would say, closer than the score looked. But uh, no, it was it was a good competitive game for for a lot of the night, and we ended up raising about one point three million dollars for local DC charities, and uh, always really fun to to be able to help a lot of the youth groups, boys and girls right. clubs and all that. And we had over 10,000 people there too. Wow. It was a raucous crowd. At Nationals, at National Stadium. National right. Stadium. Getting to play in the big league ballpark. How cool is that? <laughs> right. All right so, you don't think that loss is a bad omen for 2020. Uh, look, we get it out of our system now. <laughs> we'll be ready to win next year. Let them have it this yeah. year. Everybody remembers two years ago, the horrific events when you were shot, practicing for the game. And you wrote this book back in the game about that experience. And one of the things that leapt out at me that you wrote in the book was how that experience seemed to bring people together. You said it it, to make me feel like it wasn't just me, but the whole country had been shot at. I would get to see a nation unified. And that struck me because we are on Capitol Hill in a Congress where you seem more divided than ever. How is it that you haven't been able to translate those bipartisan sentiments you expressed in the book into what's going on here day to day on Capitol Hill? Yeah, you know, it's a rough and tumble town. I mean, especially now, it is a divided nation. You know, and our country's been at points like this periodically throughout our history and and this is one of the more divided ones but it also showed that even in times like that we can come together 
uh, when it's something that that's really important that we need to to unify behind and uh and, and it meant a lot i saw it i mean it wasn't just people strangers that were praying for me and rooting for you know all of us to to come back but it was world leaders but some would say that the immigration crisis right now to pick a yeah. leading example is something that congress ought to be able to come together on yeah, and I do think that's something we will eventually come together on. I wish it was sooner rather than later. I know in December the president had offered an opportunity to resolve the DACA problem. And uh, so far we haven't gotten to get that done. We need to. We need to keep working at it. Uh, you know, But there are a lot of other things that we pass in this town that, that are very bipartisan. They just don't get a lot of attention. You know, 21st Century Cures is a real good example of a bill we passed. And it was Republicans and Democrats coming together to put real money in the National Institute of Health to solve major diseases. One day, I think we're going to find major cures for diseases like cancer and Alzheimer's. But it doesn't get a lot of attention because the big immigration or health care or impeachment battles are the things that get most of the attention. And that's unfortunate. Be nice if we could come together a lot more. Things like USMCA are real opportunities. The new trade deal with Mexico and Canada, uh, where we have an opportunity to come together, do something. Even the labor unions support it, business groups support it. So it is something that can unite us and, and our friends. Canada wants to get this done. Mexico just, just ratified it. So hopefully that's another example, and, and I'd like to see us do it sooner rather than later. But are there any lessons that you, specific lessons that you drew from that experience on the baseball field and everyone coming together in that very difficult moment that you personally are applying in politics and um, as a legislator? There are. And, you know, I've always felt you, you shouldn't make your differences with people personal. We all have disagreements with our friends, with our spouses. You don't try to undermine somebody's integrity because they disagree with you. You talk it through. You might not be able to resolve it, but then you move on to the next thing where you're in agreement. And, and up here, I think we need to focus on that more because, yes, we do have disagreements. It's, it's what makes our country great. We're able to express those disagreements. But sometimes when you see people going after each other personally or inciting violence, there's no place for that. And I think just us focusing on the policy differences, but working through and finding common ground. There is a lot more common ground than people realize. And if we work on that in building real relationships, where if you've got a real relationship with somebody, it's going to be less likely you're going to try to go and demonize them personally when you disagree with them. You, you hopefully find more areas of common ground by right. building real relationships. But what have you done to broker a compromise on immigration, on this bill that's going to be voted on soon after we, uh, we have this podcast uh, on funding for the humanitarian crisis at the border? Right. What have you specifically done to broker a compromise? What I've been doing is trying to get the facts out about how important this is, because a lot of people aren't even aware there's this crisis at the border, where by next week, if we don't solve it, uh, there's an agency within Health and Human Services that will go into a government shutdown, which means federal workers will have to go to work by law, but without pay. There are Border Patrol agents right now that are buying diapers for these young kids coming across our border out of their own pocket because the agency ran out of money. A lot of people aren't aware of that. And mm -hmm. I think just getting the facts out mm -hmm. so that everybody can put their guard down. Sure, we're going to disagree on the wall funding or asylum loopholes that need to be closed. This isn't about that. This is about just making sure that the kids that are coming across the border, in many cases that are being abused along that journey, 
are going to be able to be taken care of in America while we're trying mm -hmm. to resolve what happens to the people that, that broke the law. Your reaction to seeing that horrific photograph of Oscar Ramirez drowned with his daughter trying to enter the country? Yeah, you know, it shows you that we got to send a message to the rest of the world that we are still a great nation of immigrants. We are an open country to immigrants. We let over a million people a year into our country legally, way more than any other country in the world. And yet we're a nation of laws that are not being properly enforced. There are a lot of loopholes. Mexico's even told us many of the people that are coming across their border from the southern part of Mexico into Mexico ultimately to the United States, are coming because our asylum laws are so broken that it's a magnet that are drawing people here illegally so that they're making those dangerous journeys. There are many people that are getting, not only that, that die on the journey, they're being raped, a lot of young but, women. But that are being, are, so are, we've got to get back to the rule of law so that right. people understand how America's immigration system but works. These are desperate people living in a region, Guatemala, uh, Honduras, of you know horrible violence and uh, economic economic deprivation. And yet President Trump has threatened to cut off funding for those countries. The Senate bill that has just passed, which I gather you're going to support, has no funding for those Central American countries. And the House bill does. Shouldn't we be working to try to improve conditions down there so these people don't feel the need to come into the United States? Well, the first thing we have to do is secure our border in America. And but it's not secure. We also need to have funding to help these countries. Well, that what President are Trump is saying is as we're giving relief to foreign countries, we shouldn't be, number one, giving money to foreign countries who use that money against us. And, and we're trying to focus better on that. But even uh, with some of the Central American countries, many of these people that are coming across the border, they're coming into Mexico and Mexico is offering them asylum. So it's if they're so concerned about their own country that they're fleeing their country, the reason you have asylum laws is to say if your life is in jeopardy, you need a place where you can go. Mexico is saying, we'll take you and we'll let you work in our country. And yet they're saying no to that. And then they go on this dangerous trek uh, into America because our asylum laws are so broken that they think there's just a free pass into America. We've got to get away from that. We shouldn't be telling people that we don't even care about our own laws. There are over a million people a year that we let in every year legally, and there's millions more that are waiting in line. What are you saying to those people that are trying to play by the rules to come to America the right way that we're not going to be concerned about our current laws and somebody can just go jump ahead of you? If there's a country like Guatemala, which they are, that have their own internal problems, sure, we can try to help them fix their problems, but we have to fix our problems too. And why is it that Speaker Pelosi is willing to give more money to Guatemala, but not give money to our border patrol agents who are working overtime, American border patrol agents? So you she want, ought to take care of them first. Would you support funding for Guatemala and Honduras? Well, we have money that we already give to those countries. But your house, what the, we, what the we're house asking those countries is to help us. Look, if we're sending money to countries, which we are billions of dollars to, to foreign countries, shouldn't we at least say there's a problem in your country that is causing problems in America? Can you try to address it? And I think it's incumbent upon those countries. We asked Mexico, by the way, to help us with this problem. And the president had threatened some tariffs. We didn't want to see it go to that. But ultimately, Mexico said, you know what? We will help you. We'll send thousands of National Guard troops 
to the Mexican southern border. And you know what? It's actually had a positive impact. There's now about a 20% reduction just in the last two weeks in people coming across Mexico's southern border because they did that. So working with countries to help us with the problems that we have in their countries, I think that's the way to approach it. Not just say, here's more money, but say, how about you help us and work with us and we'll be happy to have a better relationship with you. Congressman, your ancestors came from Italy. I think your great-grandparents came from from, from from Sicily Sicily and Calabria, maybe? Uh, Yeah, it was Palermo and Contessa and Delina. (laughs) Beautiful, beautiful I know that part of the country. It's a beautiful place. And they were, you know, Italian immigrants uh, from that part of Italy at that time were fleeing um, terrible poverty, other terrible hardships. Um, Actually, they ended up, they came pretty much directly to Louisiana, right? Uh, you're, yeah, right, you're, uh, right. right in some yeah. of the um, the sugarcane rice farms yeah. in South and Louisiana. They, were, they worked right. in those fields and then ultimately moved to New Orleans. And, and there was a lot of stores and uh, small an, anti-Italian discrimination at that time. Absolutely. There were even lynchings. Um, I just wonder, do you draw a direct line from your great-grandparents who came to this country fleeing economic hardship, terrible poverty, and, and other hardships uh, to the man and, and his little daughter who died uh, in the Rio Grande. And and does that give you a particular empathy given the experience of your own uh, great-grandparents coming to this country? Sure it does. You know, and you hate to see some of the problems that we're seeing coming across the border uh, from the deaths that were tragic uh, to the rapes and the human trafficking. That is very real that comes across our border, the, the drug smuggling. What we've got to do is get back to a rule of law where people know that this country is the greatest country in the history of the world. It's why people come here. They come here to seek freedom and to seek the American dream, just like my great-grandparents did. And that system worked a lot better uh, back in those days, in the 1920s. It even worked recently better for people that want to come here. We've got to get back to a rule of law system where people feel like we do have a secure border, where we have control over our border so that people know how to come here the right way, that they don't feel like they have to break the law or go on a life-threatening journey just to come here, that they can follow regular laws. What the president's talked about is things like the visa lottery, where we take 55,000 visas a year and just pluck names out of a hat randomly instead of focusing on merit-based system where people can know that those 55,000 visas are going to be there for them who want to come here legally to seek the American dream. What about the conditions in some of these facilities along the border where children have been staying there for many, many weeks without diapers in some cases, without the ability to take showers, without toothbrushes, pretty terrible conditions. I think it's a national disgrace. It's why President Trump called on Speaker Pelosi over six weeks ago to solve that problem, to send more money. Those agencies ran out of money weeks ago. Border Patrol agents literally are paying out of their pocket to buy diapers for kids because they ran out of money. They'd be breaking the law if they spent money they didn't have. So the president called on Congress to solve the problem. Now, what's Speaker Pelosi done the last six weeks? I have no idea. I do know she hasn't tried to solve that problem. And is there any that's blame a on the Republican side, or is it all on the Democratic We've, look, side? I, since the president sent his request down, I, I do a colloquy with the majority leader at the end of every week. That week and weeks after, I've brought the issue up over and over again. He's never disputed that the problem didn't exist. But he's never acknowledged that they would work with us to solve the problem. You shouldn't wait until the midnight hour to solve a major problem like that, where a federal agency has literally run out of money to take care of young kids. They're getting over 300 young kids a day, and they've called on Congress to send more money because they're out of money. They're literally in a government shutdown. And for whatever reason, maybe they're too focused on impeachment of the president. 
This is a real problem okay. that Speaker Pelosi should have solved six weeks ago. I want to switch gears on that front. Robert Mueller is going to testify in a few weeks. Have you read the Mueller report? I haven't read the entire thing. There are some things that I'm not able to read because there are some classified The public portions. report. Um, yes. Yeah, you have read it. Are there actions described in that report by the president, particularly volume two, that you find troubling? Well, the main thing I find troubling is that this was all about the accusation of collusion with Russia with the presidential campaign. Based on, by the way, a partisan document right. that was put together with Russian help, which, which right. is real ironic. And there were some real, real bad actors within the FBI who had a partisan agenda. That should never I, be the I, case. I want to discuss that. But at that, the end of the day, the, the Mueller report was, said very clearly there was no collusion. But what, what, that was, was at the heart of the issue. by the president? His and there was order no obstruction, to, by the His way. order to Don McGahn to create a false document. His entreaty, his order to Corey Lewandowski to tell Jeff Sessions to restrict the investigation into his campaign. Well, let, let's be I clear, mean, do you though, find any of that troubling? Is there clear. anything that the president what troubles did? Me, if you'd like to know what troubles me. Yes. What troubles me is that there was no obstruction by the president. They thought the president was going to try to shut the whole Mueller investigation down. President Trump didn't. They thought the president wasn't going to comply. President Trump complied. There were over 500 people that were witnesses that were brought into the Mueller report, over $30 million. He did not bring one single charge. Mueller had the opportunity, if he saw collusion or if he saw obstruction, to bring charges against the president. He didn't bring one single charge. And so at some point, the American people are going, when are you going to move on to solving real problems? The committee of jurisdiction of the Mueller report right now, where they're doing all of this impeachment drumbeat, that's the same committee that has jurisdiction over the border crisis. And they haven't done a thing about the border crisis because they're focusing on a Mueller report they thought was going to yield some kind of collusion. There was no collusion. Why don't they move on and solve real problems that people care about? You know, I understand that there are legitimate questions about the uh, Mueller investigation and how Democrats have handled this, and maybe outrages in the views of, of many of your supporters, many Americans, about some of this. But I guess the question is, is it completely binary? Is there anything that you would concede in terms of the president's behavior? Because that, I think, goes to... This question that Mike asked at the outset, which is, you know, you saw how people came together when you were shot. You talk about wanting there to be bipartisanship. But don't you also have to make gestures in that direction? And part of that is not always being a partisan warrior. Well, look, I've had disagreements with President Trump on different fronts, and I bring those issues to him, whether it's on trade policy, tax policy. I helped put together that tax cut bill that's President Trump's signature achievement. When we were working in the House to put that together, we weren't always in sync with the White House, but we had a working relationship where we could sit down and work through those problems. And we came up with a bill that has now put our economy on track to be one of the best, hottest economies in the history of the world, where every single sector of our country is doing better. Lowest unemployment among African Americans and Hispanics in the history of our country. Women start on businesses are on an uptick. Things that you would have wanted to see for decades, this is actually happening right now, and there's more good things we could do. When I go around my district or around the country, people aren't saying they, you know, they want to impeach the president. They're saying they want their prescription drug prices lower. We passed a bipartisan bill unanimously out of committee. The Energy and Commerce Committee unanimously passed a bill to lower drug prices. And it, when it came to the floor, instead of Speaker Pelosi saying, hey, this is a great model for us to work with President Trump to lower drug prices, she put a whole bunch of poison pill partisan amendments in. 
and made it a partisan bill. This was a bill that passed unanimously. We should be working on those kind of things, lowering drug prices, getting the economy even hotter than it can be, getting trade deals. USMCA, our trade deal with Mexico and Canada, should have been passed months ago. Why Speaker Pelosi hasn't brought that to the floor, I don't know. Business groups want it. Labor unions want it. Canada wants it. Mexico's already passed it. Speaker Pelosi won't even bring that to the floor. All they are focused on right now is impeachment. And people are saying, just focus on the problems of everyday Americans. Stop all of this partisanship. Congressman, the former advice columnist, Gene Carroll, has come forward and says that Donald Trump sexually assaulted her in a Bergdorf Gordman dressing room in 1995 or 1996. Do you have any reason not to believe her? First of all, the president's been very emphatic that it didn't happen. The Anderson Cooper interview that she did is one of the most bizarre interviews I've ever seen. Anderson Cooper went to a commercial because he didn't even want her on the air anymore. So look, let's again, focus on real problems. You saw this when the Kavanaugh hearing was going on. By the end of the Kavanaugh hearing, there were people coming forward saying he was a gang rapist, ludicrous accusations right. that were completely unfounded, by the way, and everybody realized. But there have been okay, that's multiple enough. women who have come forward and described conduct by President Trump that would be considered by anybody inappropriate. At some point, do you have to either believe that all of them are lying or that there is well, conduct the, by all, the president that you it, would condemn? That's, that's a little bit salacious to say there's all these accusations well, there are that are, well, accusations. shouldn't, aren't we in a country where you're innocent until proven guilty? A lot of, let, let's see where this goes. When you saw the Kavanaugh hearing, I think the country really turned and said, hold on a second, this is enough, where you literally try to search and destroy a person because you don't agree with their politics. Look, Donald Trump ran a campaign for president against Hillary Clinton, where the country knew what the differences are between both of the candidates and the direction they wanted to take the country uh, from immigration to health care on down. And they elected Donald Trump, clearly elected him. He was honestly duly elected president. No Russian interference. He didn't include with Russia. Well, there was the Russian only interference. Attempt, you no, can see the only attempt by Russia to interfere was when Barack Obama was president. Russia clearly tried to interfere. They didn't change a single vote in any voting machine, but they tried to interfere when Barack Obama was president. Why didn't President Obama do more to stop Russia from inter interfering? President Trump's working really hard right now with Congress in some places to stop Russia from being able to do it again. I wish Speaker Pelosi would work closer with President Trump to stop Russian interference in future elections, unlike what Barack Obama did when he was president. Again, Donald Trump was elected president to solve those problems. The people that didn't vote for him, I didn't support a lot of Barack Obama's policies, but once he was elected president, I worked with him on things we could agree on, like the 21st Century Cures Act, probably one of the last bills that Barack Obama signed. So yes, you, sh you can disagree with people, but don't make it a personal hatred of him and try to seek and destroy last, them last every question. single day. Shouldn't they be able to work with the president if, to solve question, problems? If the House does vote to impeach President Trump, what will happen? What will be the reaction? I think there'll be a huge backlash to Speaker Pelosi. The country doesn't want it. There's been no, uh, the high crimes and misdemeanors standard. There have been no 
formal charges brought against the president and all the accusations that they brought turned out to be baseless. Collusion was what it was all going to be about. They really thought there was going to be collusion with Russia and there was absolutely none. And instead of moving on, they want impeachment, whether the facts meet it or not. The standard should be in any kind of investigation, follow the facts where they lead. And if it leads to nothing like the Mueller report, he didn't file one single charge. He had the opportunity. He had over $30 million of taxpayer money in almost two years and not one single charge. Right now, do you Why think, should do you Nadler think still want to impeach him yeah. even now that there are no charges? Right now, Shouldn't he be focusing will? on the immigration crisis? His committee has jurisdiction over a national scandal, a national scandal where kids aren't even being given the basic health care needs they have because the federal agency ran out of money and President Trump called on Congress to give them the money. President Trump doesn't want this scandal to be going on, but he asked Congress to appropriate money when he's out of money and Pelosi won't give the money. So that's on her right now. I don't want it to be there. I want her to work with the president to solve this problem and so many other problems. A lot of these problems are solvable. They're not, look, immigration, sure, there's some big differences, but there are more than enough Republicans and Democrats who are ready to solve everything from the security at the border to the asylum loopholes to DACA. And again, President Trump put DACA on the table Speaker Pelosi walked away from that in December. She needs to come back to the table and focus on these problems. Stop the personal assassination and impeachment drumbeat, whether it's there or not. Let's focus on real problems and we can solve them. Congressman, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Good to be with you. Hey, go go get the book back in the game. It's a really good story about heroes. <laughs> right we, need, we need to see about heroes a lot more in this country. And there, and there are real heroes out there. Thanks to Congressman Steve Scalise and Yahoo News' own Jenna McLaughlin for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. And now you can watch the podcast on yahoonews.com, YouTube, and Roku, Saturdays and Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Talk to you soon.